Well, good morning and welcome to Cross Community Church. We're glad you're here, especially those of you who are here. Uh, if you're a guest, we're just really grateful that you've chosen to worship with us today. We say this often here. It's our mission as a church to lead people to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus. And so just on the front end, I want you to know we are not here uh, to play church, to be religious, to, to kind of do our religious duty by any stretch. That's not what we're about. What we want to call people to is full and complete faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to be doing that. Last week as we talked about freedom from death, that Jesus, his death and his burial and resurrection gives us freedom from death. So here's kind of the quick recap if you weren't here last week. You and I, because we're sinners, we've rebelled against God. We've gone our own way. We've done our own thing. Now, we do that in a lot of different ways. Some people do the sins that our culture might term to be big sins, and other people, it's the smaller sins. For me, I grew up in church. I knew how to kind of, I could talk the talk, you know what I mean? Like, I knew to shake people's hands and call them brother, because that's what you're supposed to do in church. Like, outwardly, I could do the thing, but what I desperately needed was God to transform my heart. And so what happened for me is the same thing that happens for everyone who comes to faith in Christ. Um, Jesus died on the cross to atone for the sins and the death that he, to, for my sins, the death that he died was the death that I deserved. Jesus endured the wrath of God on the cross against the sins that I had committed. And on the outside, he might have looked at me and you know, thought, oh, there's a pretty good kid. But if you would have known what was going on inside my heart, if you could just read the story of my life, you would know that I was a person that deserved to die for my sins. And Christ, he saw it all. And he went to the cross and he bore the just punishment for my sin and, and your sin and the sins of anyone who would come to faith in him. So last week we saw that we were dead in trespasses and sins, but we've been made alive together with Christ. We now don't worry about the future. We know because for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, would have everlasting life. We have been given freedom over death. We don't serve a God who's in the grave. I'm not going to tell you today to trust in a God who isn't alive, who's still in a tomb somewhere, been dead for a couple thousand years. That's not the God that we serve. We serve a risen Savior. The thing that is the mark, the defining mark of Christianity is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He appeared to some 500 people and then ascended into heaven. And so we as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe some outrageous things, but they have profound effects in our lives. The first of those is that we are now set free from death. We don't fear it. We don't run from it. We don't have to be concerned about it. We know that this life is just kind of like the warm-up to ultimately what God would have us live throughout eternity in a place called heaven with Him. But here, here's the, the thing that I want to speak about today in particular. Wouldn't it be a shame if you and I as uh, those who have inherited the riches of Christ, those who know we're going to rule and reign with Christ in heaven one day, we're going to get to see Him face to face, be reunited with our loved ones, no more sin or shame or pain or hurt. Like, we're going to get to spend eternity in heaven. Wouldn't it be a shame if we wasted the rest of the time that we had here? Wouldn't it be a shame if those of us who had been set free from sin and death continued to be devoured by sin and by our enemy here in this life? Today, I want to speak to you about freedom from death, or freedom from sin. The cross doesn't just set us free from death one day, but ultimately sets us free from sin today. Now, when I, I talk about sin, people like, kind of get like, oh, there's like that, 
that word that you don't really want to hear your preacher say because you know you're going to get picked on or whatever. Uh, I, I don't know what your sin is. I, haven't, like, I don't have a confessional. I don't hear people come in and just, hey, let me lay all this out to you. But today I do want to speak about sin because it, it has a profound effect on our lives and not just us, but on the people who are around us. Uh, there's a couple of errors that we make when we approach sin. Like, uh, first of all, people don't know what sin is. And so I want to take just a minute and kind of define that for you. Um, you may have heard sin referred to as uh, missing the mark. It's the archery term, you know. So when you think about archery, you got like the bullseye and then the, the concentric circles there, the rings, you know, and you get fewer points the farther away from the mark that you get. Uh, you might have heard sin referred to as just missing the mark. And that is true, uh, but what we need to know is that the standard for righteousness, the bullseye, if you will, is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And oftentimes, if, 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 like, if you're the bullseye or someone else is the bullseye, we might think, you know, I wasn't as good as grandma, but I got close. I'm still going to score some points in terms of the game of life. But if we think about sin as missing the mark, if Jesus is the bullseye, you and I never hit the target. For all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And so when we think about sin, it does mean to miss the mark. It's basically rebellion against God. It's going our own way, making our own path. It's the decisions that we make of whether to submit ourselves to Christ or to pursue the things of this world. So that's the sin I want to talk to you about today. And there's two really significant errors we make with regard to sin. The first is that we underestimate the destructiveness of sin. I don't know if that's a word, but it's the one I use. Destructiveness of sin. Like, oftentimes we think, and we say to ourselves, you know, <clears throat> my sin's not that big of a deal. I mean, if I think, pretty angry thought in my head. Who does that affect? And the things that I do in my personal time where no one's around, what, what does that matter? The little white lies, we often say, hey, it's not that big of a deal. If, if you remember Genesis 3, this is not a new way of thinking. In the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve, God's placed them there. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but not the one in the center. And so Satan, he comes in the form of a certain serpent to tempt Eve. He says, Eve, <clears throat> did God really tell you not to eat from any of these trees? And she's like, no, that's not what God said. Why would you even bring that up? Um, she says, God told us not to eat or touch the tree in the middle of the garden or we're, we're going to die. Which also wasn't what God said, but that's neither here nor there. And he, he, he whispers to her something that I think is really compelling for many of us. An argument that many, many people buy into. And he says, Eve, if you eat that tree, surely you're not going to die. It won't be that big of a deal, would it? It's a piece of fruit. You eat from all these other trees, what does it matter if you eat from that one? Surely you won't die. The first mistake we often make when thinking about sin, is that we profoundly underestimate how destructive it is to us and to those who are ultimately around us. We say this isn't hurting anyone, it's just a little gossip, needed event, right? Everyone loses it every now and then, and so we, we choose sin. We pursue the desires of our flesh. We go and indulge in things that we think are going to make us feel better. And again, we dramatically underestimate the effects of sin one of the things that's um, compelling to Americans is to do what feels good, right? Isn't that the message of our culture? 
hey, this is going to make you feel better. We feel our way to truth these days, right? Rather than having an objective standard of truth, um, I may feel one thing about truth, you may feel another. And so our culture has adopted this mantra of your truth or my truth. And so we feel our way there. The, the problem with that is, is like the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way which seems right. You might just put feels right, right? There's a way which seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. We make a huge error when we underestimate just how destructive sin will be in our lives. Paul wrote to the believers in Galatians 2,000 years ago what I would want us to hear to be true today. He said, do not be deceived. Mom and dad, kid, believer, here at Cross Community Church 2,000 years later, don't be deceived. Like don't buy into the lie because God is not going to be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. If you sow to please your flesh, you're going to reap destruction. You sow to please the Spirit. From that Spirit, you're ultimately going to reap life. Many of us, when we think about sin and we make our decisions for our life, what we don't realize or what we don't see that we're doing, it's like we're going throughout our, our, our lives, our marriages, our jobs and parenting, our kids, and we're sowing seeds of destruction, not only into our life, but into theirs. Hey, it's not that big of a deal. Just scatter and seed. Maybe all, maybe all of them won't take root, but certainly some of them will. Sowing seeds of destruction into our lives because we don't realize just how destructive sin is. Uh, a few years ago, I went to a conference and a pastor was telling a story about his kid. And he was studying at home on this particular day. And I don't know if you've ever tried to study anything with children around, but they know it, right? And they have like this magnetism that they're like, oh, I desperately need my parents' attention. Like right now, his son had been saying, dad, will you play with me? I'm bored. You know, whatever it might have been. Dad, 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 you know, just kept, kept interrupting him. Finally, he did what all good parents do and said, you need to go play outside, right? It's our only like respite. It's the only way to escape from our kids. And so, we recommend the outside. The little boy went outside and all of a sudden it got quiet, which, you know, will get your attention faster as a parent than anything. Like, what, what's going on? They're not badgering me. There must be something wrong. And, and as he looks up, his, his young boy is walking through the front door and he's got something in his hand. He's overjoyed. He's like, Dad, I got a friend. I've got a friend. And he runs through the front door and the father looks to see that his son has picked up a snake that he found outside. And he's just overjoyed. He's like, you were right. Outside was awesome. Like, I've got a snake here in my hand. And upon closer inspection, the father realized that it wasn't just any snake. It was a rattlesnake in the hand of his young son. And so he's terrified. He's like, hey, hey, wait, you got to put it. But then he's inside. You can't put the snake down inside. And so anyway, they handle the snake. The boy ultimately didn't get bit. But many of us go through life just like that young boy man we got sin that we keep close we think it's our friend we kind of keep it there like our little pet we think this thing is awesome when in reality we're holding destruction in our hands man it's right there and as the people of god who, who would claim to be followers of jesus and we believe the bible we continue to say hey it's not really that big of a deal man it's not going to hurt me Maybe we're just naive like that little boy. 
not realizing the thing that we hold in our hand, the thing that we're chasing after, the thing that we're allowing into our life is really there to destroy us. Don't be misled. God won't be mocked. And when we sow to please our flesh, pursuing the sins of this life, we are going to reap destruction. I think if I were the devil and I wanted to bring like, destruction to as many people as I possibly could, I would try to convince them that what is bad for them was actually good. That the thing that I was using to destroy them was ultimately going to be something good for them. I would try to convince them of that. Because if you could, people would chase after it on their own. You wouldn't even have to like, keep convincing them, right? Like, oh, I think this thing's good, when in reality, it was destroying them. Church, I believe that's happened, like, in particular, in American Christianity. And we've got money, we've got opportunity, we've got all sorts of options. And with those options, we've often chosen things that bring destruction into our lives. So, mistake number one is underestimating the destructiveness of sin. Uh, mistake number two is underestimating the nature and character of God. For many of us, we think about God kind of like we did our parents when we were teenagers. Like kind of old and out of touch, not really up with the times. You know, doesn't really understand the day in which we live or how things operate anymore. I mean, the times, they are a-changing. And maybe God, like our parents, really doesn't get it. And so we just kind of chart our own path. Isn't it funny that we still do that as adults? Even when we've gotten a little bit older and our parents have gotten infinitely smarter than they were when we were teenagers. I mean, many of us bear the scars on our souls of the times we chose to disobey our parents, the things that we ran after even against their warnings, and yet we continue to do the same thing to God. Let's just put this on the table. God understands how the world works. He created it. The intricacy, the complexity, the beauty of the world, that's all God. And he knows how people work. He knows how he intended life to work. Like, not only that, but God is the one who saw you and I in all of our sin. All of it. Even the one you did last week. Maybe even last night. And he saw you with compassion. And he loved you so much that he sent his son to die the death that you and I deserved. God loves us. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And that would be terrifying. But God is also all-good. And He is all-love. He's holy. And He's righteous. And if we understood the nature and character of God, I don't think we'd chase after sin. But instead, we would see the commandments of God, not as like restrictions that keep us from really enjoying life, but every commandment that we read in the Word or every command of Jesus would actually be an invitation to fullness of life. Isn't that what we do for our kids? Like I'm trying to convince my kids on how important it is that they would invest themselves in school. And they're like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. They're like, no, I want to go play soccer. I've got better things to do. And you're like, no, no, no. Pay attention in school because you're going to go to college and you'll wish that you would have. Or one day you're going to have to like live this stuff out in your life. It's not as easy as you think, you know. And so uh, what I desire for my kids is that they would experience the abundant life, the fullest life possible. And oftentimes they just think I'm old and out of touch. And I believe that's true of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, the enemy has come to steal and to kill and destroy. 
And he wants to ruin your life. He wants to ruin your marriage. He wants to blow up your family. Strife and conflict, brokenness, sin, pain. That's what the enemy wants for you. But Jesus said, hey, that's the, that's the mode of the enemy. I came to my, that they might have life and have it to the fullest. He's like, man, I want to teach them how to live. I don't want them to wait for one day when they die to start living in the kingdom of God in his abundance and fullness. I want them to start living it right here and right now. And so today I want to talk to you about living a life free of sin. Now, if you're sitting there and you're like, hold on a minute, I've tried that. <clears throat> I tried really hard at that and it, it didn't work. I want you to hear something from the Apostle Paul. Um, he's actually anticipating the argument that often comes when we talk about the gospel of Jesus. I mean, last week I talked about how the gospel seems a little bit too good to be true, where we committed all of the sin, but Jesus paid all of the price. He took all the punishment, where he was the one who was perfect and he was the one who was punished, where we were the one who were guilty and all we got was his grace. Like it seems almost too good to be true and so much so that people way back in the time of Paul, just like today, would say, hold on a minute. I feel like God needs something more from me. I mean, if God is that gracious, won't people just keep on sinning? I mean, if Jesus died for all of our sin, regardless of how well we behave, if Jesus died on the cross and he's already atoned for it all, man, won't people just kind of live it up as long as they're here because Jesus already took care of that? Paul anticipates this argument and he responds to it in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then to the grace of God that's like overwhelming, that we describe as reckless, that he would be this loving and this gracious? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that might, like, we might show the grace of God, the grace of God might have to increase for our sin? And he answers with this really, really strong negative in the Greek. It's meganoito. It means like, may it never be. Like, don't even think that. Don't even entertain that thought. Because something profound happened in us uh, when we came to faith in Christ. Paul had mentioned to the church at Ephesus, you were dead in your transgressions, but you've been made alive together with Christ. But there was another profound transformation that took place. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we become a new creation. Many of us walk in, in like guilt and shame and all that through our lives, think about the things that we've done in the past. Listen, all of that died with Christ on the cross. It's been taken away. And so the Apostle Paul is going to give us the analogy or the picture of baptism. In verse 2, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? You're like, well, I don't feel dead to sin. What, what are you talking about, Paul? He's going to tell us in verse 3. He says, or, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? I said, I want to be really clear. Baptism didn't wash your sins away. Like those were atoned for by the blood of Christ. We don't get dunked. There's nothing holy about the water. There's not like something really mystical that happens when you get dunked. Instead, baptism is a symbol of what Jesus Christ has already done for those of us who come to faith in him. And so Paul's like, you want, you want to know what baptism is really about? Man, it's a picture of what has taken place by, by the work of Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into to death. 
So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You see, in baptism, we identify with Jesus in His death and His burial and ultimately His resurrection. That the old person, the old identity that we have, that sinful person who was enslaved to sin before Christ has now died with Jesus and we've been raised to walk in a new life. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and new has come. The reason that you're no longer a slave to sin that you don't have to walk anymore in that old way of life. The reason that you have been set free from sin is because the Holy Spirit of God has now come to live within you. When Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven and he told his disciples, he's like, hey, you guys need to wait in Jerusalem for me. Like, don't go try to perform miracles. Don't try to convert the world. You need to wait. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, man, you're going to receive power. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Now, these are the guys who just a few days before had denied even knowing who Jesus was. But when the Holy Spirit came, when they were made new in Christ, when they received the Holy Spirit, the whole game changed. The old disciples went away. The old Peter went away. And the new man was born. Peter stood up boldly on the day of Pentecost and proclaimed Christ to the men who would wish to kill him. The old is gone and the new has come. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we're new creations. In verse 6, Paul says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. And so for us, we have this opportunity to not live in the destructiveness of sin any longer. No longer like experiencing the death that comes through sinning one after another after another, like living this life of destruction from sin. But we can walk in a new life. The fullest, richest, most abundant life. It's not having more money. It's not being more successful. It's not being famous or any of the things that our world would point to. You know, the most full, rich, and abundant life you will ever live is the life most fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. Like turning away from sin and following after Jesus. So what do we do with sin? I mean, even, even the Bible would tell us we have this flesh like we still live in a fleshly body. It's going to be tending towards sin. And we have this now, we have the Holy Spirit within us. And so the, the Bible talks about this flesh-spirit distinction. How in the world do we walk in this righteous life following the narrow path that Jesus has for us? I want to give you three weapons of warfare. Uh, the three weapons that God has given us against sin. But first, I want to tell you why you should fight. You may not know it. But sin's a lot like cancer. Sin, when left undealt with, it grows. The thing that we might be tempted to say, hey, it's not really that big of a deal. Everybody's doing that in our culture. It's a different day. I'm just going to accept this. The sin that we don't put to death will ultimately put us to death. It's like cancer. It grows and it grows and it grows. And it's not something you want to keep around. It's something that you want to kill in your life. And so I want to give you the three weapons of our warfare, the three tools that we use to make war against sin. The first is the Word of God. I know this sounds like super churchy answer. You might have heard this before. But God has given us His Word. 
In a culture that has no idea what truth is anymore, God has given us His Word, the truth to stand upon. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired. This is the Greek word theonoustos. It means breathed out by God. Now, if God is perfect in all of His ways, if He's perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, you know what His words are as well? They're perfect. And so we look to the Bible and we don't see something that's old and outdated and not really applicable today. We see the Word of God breathed out to us, which is useful for beneficial, for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training us in righteousness. I mean, we want to live in the abundant life of Jesus Christ. And so we look to His Word. To say, this is how we're supposed to live. It's truth. Like, you can take it to the bank. It's going to hold true. And yet, many of us, even those of us who claim to follow Jesus, and we have time to pursue and to read and to study and entertain ourselves with almost anything other than the Word of God. I listened to a preacher several weeks ago who said, maybe the biggest lie that the enemy is telling the church of the day, especially the men of the church of the day, is, hey, I, I can't really read God's Word. Man, I don't get it. I can't understand it. Like, we can read. Like, we've, we've got this. We can study sports pages, right? We, we, we read the things that we care about. We scroll social media. We read. We're actually pretty darn good at it. Compared to the rest of the world, we're darn good readers. And yet, for many of us, we buy the lie that somehow we can't read the Word of God and understand what it ultimately says for us. And so, for men, I just want to challenge you guys. Like, don't buy that lie for another second. Your family needs you to step up and to look at the Word of God. Like, Quit being weak men who just kind of go with the flow. Like, men stand up for what's right, and you can't stand up for it if you don't know what it is. So get in the Word and set an example for your family. Like, lead out in studying the Scriptures. Teach your kids to do so. Study with your wives. Be men. Lead. Men, our church and our culture desperately needs men that aren't going to be deceived and fooled by the works of the enemy. Or you're like leading the way as the enemy destroys your family because you don't know the Word. Stop making excuses. Begin to study the Word of God. It is a weapon that, we, that, that God has given us to wield against sin, that we know the truth instead of buying the lies. And so weapon number one is the Word of God. The second thing that God has given us is the Spirit of God. Like the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you. If you're confident in any given situation that Jesus could overcome the temptation, you should be confident that you can because the Spirit of God is now alive in you. Jesus actually said it this way in, in John 15, 5. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branch. He who abides in me or remains in me and I in him, he's going to bear much fruit. When you remain connected to me, your life is going to be fruitful. But apart from me, you're going to do nothing. You know, if we don't follow the Holy Spirit, if we don't listen to the leading of the Spirit in our lives, man, we're, we're doomed. Like, there will be no good fruit born in our lives. In Galatians 5.16, Paul said it this way, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Like, this ought to be the pattern of your life. We're all pretty familiar with the desires of our flesh. Uh, I've been on a, a little diet. <clears throat> didn't tell anybody because I didn't want to be embarrassed when it went bad. Uh, last night, met with one of our community groups, and they brought out this piece of cake. 
and it just happened to be Italian cream. And like, it, it, like the icing is so unbelievably awesome. And I knew the desires of my flesh. You know, I didn't have to wonder like, oh, I wonder what my flesh wants here. Like I wanted the cake, like the huge, the whole thing. Like I didn't want to share. I just wanted to eat it. But you know what we have to do? We have to pursue the desires of the Spirit. Like, that's why we come before God in prayer, not just in the morning, but in any given situation. Like, God, what would you have for me here? We think, well, what does the Word say about this situation? God, would you help me to walk in this? It's a hundred times a day that I'm like, God, would you help me to walk in purity right now? Man, the things that we see online, on television, it's constantly like fighting to put images in our mind. God, would you help me to walk in purity here? And you're going to hear things in your workplace, in the office, man, to enter into the gossip or entertain like all the things that people might be saying. And it's, God, would you help me to walk in purity? This is submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit and not to our flesh. Confession, I did eat cake. Sorry, it, it happened. I gave in. Next, tomorrow, I'm back on the diet and we'll be uh, really strong there. But God's given us three tools to fight against sin, to put it to death in our lives. We have the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the final thing, maybe the most neglected, is the people of God. Man, I grew up in church. And by the way, I'm not saying anything bad about dressing nice. If you're one of those, gets up early, dresses nice for church, awesome. I hope it's worship to you. But I grew up in a generation, you probably did too, where we, we got up and we dressed ourselves for church. And we didn't just put on nice clothes, we put on nice faces. And we came to church and we pretended like everything was okay. Right? We shook hands and we called each other brother and sister. Everybody was fine, I'm fine, you're fine, we're all fine, right? That's how we lived. But the truth of it is, is we're not okay here. Like there's, there are people sitting right beside you in this room who are battling addiction. There are people who are here today whose lives are being devoured by sin and brokenness. There's a, there's a lady here who's contemplating the affair and a man who's, who's already begun down that path. It's happening right here. And if we show up and we just pretend, if no one will step up and say, I'm going to go first, here's my sin, here's where I'm struggling, would you guys pray for me? Would you guys help me through this? Man, we're destined to fail. You see, God did not intend for you to wrestle with sin on your own. As a matter of fact, there's like 37 commandments in the New Testament that you can never fulfill by yourself. One of those is this, in James chapter 5, verse 16. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. Why do we confess to one another and pray for each other? So that you might be healed. Would you quit buying the lie that you're going to get better on your own? And quit buying the lie that you can handle this. That you're going to, that here in just a few minutes, you're going to maybe get the, the self-control you're going to need to turn away from it. You're not going to. God has ordained that we go to war against sin in community with other believers. Last week, Dustin stood up here and he confessed some really difficult things. And one of the reasons we had him do that is we want you to know that this is a place where it's okay to not be okay. Every single one of us, including myself, wrestle against sin. Man, I've got a past and it's ugly. I don't, I, don't, I don't love it. I don't love to talk about it. But what I do want is healing from that. And so this is going to be a place where we confess our sins one to another. And walking in open and honest confession. And we're going to ask other people to pray for us so that we may be healed. The end of that verse says, A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. God opposes the proud. 
Pride says, I can handle this. Pride says, no one can know. Pride says, I need to put on the face. Pride says, I need to pretend like I'm okay. Pride says, I need to pretend like I've got it all together. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility acknowledges that you can't handle it on your own. Humility acknowledges that your sin is out of control, that it's growing in you and it's beginning to devour you. Humility invites other people in to pray for you. That is the process that God has ordained that we might be healed. So the three tools that God has given us to make war against sins, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. Y'all, sin dies in the light. But it thrives in the darkness. For many of us, we want to keep our sin way back where nobody else sees it. No one has to know. We can keep our appearance on the outside even while we're being devoured on the inside. We kill sin by dragging it into the light. Please don't underestimate the destructiveness of sin in your own life, in your family, in your home, your marriage, in your relationships. And don't underestimate the goodness of God in giving us his commands, which are ultimately going to lead us to life. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, in this time, we pray that you would be so good as to convict us of our sins. God, oftentimes we get so content with even the sinful practices of our life that they just become normal, they become routine, we don't even think about it. So Lord, I pray that today, that as we look at your word, we, we listen to your spirit, that you would bring to mind the sins of our life that we need to confess in this moment. God, the things that we need to make war against so they don't destroy us. Father, we're praying and we're asking you for the gift of repentance today. For the grace that we might humble ourselves and receive your grace as opposed to walking in pride. God, we pray that we'd be a church of men and women who boldly drag our sin into the light that it might be dealt with. That we're not tomorrow's headline, but we're today's confession. Lord Jesus, may you deliver us in your grace. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.